This afternoon, we'll continue working our way through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And at this point, we've reached the petition, Your Kingdom Come. So in connection with that, we'll read together from Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12, the verses 22 to 30. And you'll be able to find that on page 1125 of your pew Bible. Matthew 12, verses 22 to 30. Then one was brought to him, him being Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the real ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So far the word of God. Let's now read together in connection with that petition. The second petition, your kingdom come, from Lord's Day 48 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and you'll be able to find that on page 561 of your Book of Praise, Lord's Day 48. What is the second petition? Your kingdom come, that is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our passage today, the passage that we read from Matthew 12, we have our Lord Jesus Christ preaching the kingdom more and more urgently as he's been going through the countryside. While it's been unusual for the people, it's also been having an effect. People everywhere are flocking to hear him. They want to learn. But with his increasing popularity, there's an increasing amount of opposition. And this reaches a climax in the remarkable healing of a blind and mute man. There's a stir among the people who are busy listening to him. They hear him proclaiming the kingdom And they're immediately thinking an earthly kingdom, a messianic earthly kingdom that'll come to overthrow the Romans. So they start whispering among themselves and they say, is this the son of David? Could this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? 
Does this mean that God's kingdom is going to come in power here in Israel now, today, so that we can throw off the oppression of the Roman yoke? Shocked by the suggestions of the people, the Pharisees barely come to the opposite conclusion. Instead of recognizing Jesus for who he is, their opposition reaches its climax here. Not only do they grumble against him, they have been doing that for some time now, but this time not only do they grumble against him, but they say it's by Beelzebul that he does what he does. They've reached a conclusion. It's by the power of Satan himself that he's able to drive out demons. There could be no other way in their minds. Angry, Jesus says, how can a kingdom, city, or house stand if it's divided against itself? It can't. How can you say that this is the devil's work when it's so clearly undoing the work that the devil has been doing in this man and in so many other occasions? In these poor people's lives who have been held bondage by him, the kingdom is slowly being revealed. How can you say that's the work of the devil? What you're seeing is the coming of the kingdom of God. With that, we'll be looking at the concept of the kingdom of God this afternoon under the following theme and points. Your kingdom come. And we'll be seeing it under three points. First of all, the kingdom of heaven and then the kingdom come to earth, and thirdly, who brings the kingdom? So first of all, with the kingdom of heaven, we need to take back, in order to understand the full scope of what's meant by the kingdom of heaven, we need to take back a step and look at the word kingdom itself. What's exactly meant by the word kingdom? The Greek word for kingdom is basileia. And a kingdom itself is under complete control of the king, the basileus. It's his realm. It's his domain. Today's equivalent might be understood with the phrase, uh, man's home is his castle. The idea behind this, although it might not necessarily be particularly true in every situation, is that a man can come back to his home and his home is kind of his, his place of comfort where he can sit down and he gets a sense of security there because the things that he has in his home are arranged the way he wants it. The home gives him that sense of security. So why is that the case? It's where the man could come after a long day at work to settle in. It's arranged just the way he and his family like it. Pictures are up on the walls. The furniture is positioned just the way you want it. It's home. It's the place where you have some measure of control over your environment. That's why when you have someone staying over for a longer period of time, you'll notice it. Consider for a moment how, you'd, how you would feel if you had a house guest coming to visit. And after a little while of staying, they started to shift around the furniture. It would rub you the wrong way, wouldn't it? It's because it's your kingdom and your home. It's your domain and you have it arranged just the way you like it. 
Last time we discussed the Lord's Prayer, we considered the petition, hallowed be your name. And if you remember, we talked about the holiness of God, His purity. You might remember us referring back to Isaiah, where the cherubim were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These same cherubim covered their faces in the brightness of God's glory and holiness. No sin could stand in His sight. When we speak about the kingdom of heaven, we're speaking about where God has his domain, where God has things just the way he likes it. In heaven, we're speaking about God's rule. There we have a place of perfection and purity. God's will is perfectly carried out in heaven. And because of that, it's the best possible place to live. Now here on earth, All of our broken relationships are due to our rebellion against God's kingdom rules and against God. Every time we speak sourly to our wives or girlfriends or boyfriends or husbands or are bitter to each other or are short with our children, we're ultimately rebelling against God. Every time that we hurt those around us or are hurt by those around us, it's the effects of rebellion against God. Every time that there are tears or mourning or crying or pain, it's due to rebellion. But in heaven where God reigns, all is made whole and all is right. It's his kingdom and run just the way that he wants it. He makes no allowances for sin there. He heals the harm that's been done and wipes away every tear. There, everything is made right. Understanding that, we're brought to understand why the catechism opens with the words that it does. We read there, So rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you when we say, Your kingdom comes. It echoes the sentiment that we read in Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the way of uprightness. They're saying God's kingdom is good. God's kingdom rule is good. Teach me to live in accordance with God's kingdom rule, because that's the best possible way to live. There's a saying that goes, there's no better place to be than at the center of God's will, unless it's in his presence. We're not saying that it is the safest place to be on earth. We're not saying it's the place with the least hardship. But it is the best place to be. God is our God, and his spirit is good. When we ask for his kingdom to come, we're asking him that his perfection and his goodness come as well. And that, on our part, expresses a love for God's goodness and a will, and his will, a love for his will, and a desire that that will should be a part of the entirety of our lives. Do you believe that when you confess your kingdom come? Do you love God's goodness, holiness, and will? Are you able to say, your word is a lamp to my feet 
and a light to my path. Saying your kingdom come is an expression of love for who God is and for the way that he runs things. It's an expression for love, of love for God's will. It's like living in a foreign country. And after a while of living in a foreign country, you start to feel a bit homesick for home. That homesickness is a longing for the comforts of home, a wish that you could be there. It's a wish that the things that you are familiar with could be where you currently are. Or even better, it's a wish that you could come home. And that's what we're praying for, essentially. While we can't be home just yet, we're praying that God's kingdom, that we love and care for, and that we know is the only solution for this broken world that could possibly exist, would come in its fullness here on earth. And that's what we'll be discussing in our second point. So when you pray your kingdom come, how does this begin practically? Our Lord Jesus Christ begins this with banishing a demon from a man who is blind and mute. Now, as an aside, some people make the argument that everything back in the day was because of a demon, because they didn't have modern medicine. And so they write off demon possession as simply not being able to explain natural events, natural occurring illnesses or seizures, schizophrenia or other, feature, uh, other issues. But here we can see that it's more than that. There are naturally occurring illnesses, certainly, that do present these symptoms, but what do we notice? We read, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man spoke and saw. Now, Christ has healed muteness and blindness before. He has done it in the past. But in those cases, it was without demonic involvement. You can find examples of this in Matthew 9, verse 29. Matthew 15, verse 30, 20, verse 34, 21, verse 14, and that's just Matthew. You'll find other cases in the other Gospels, and in none of those cases is there a mention of demonic involvement. So this is not just the case of naming something as demon possession because you don't understand it. This was the case of demonic forces being directly involved with someone in front of Jesus. Jesus purified that man. And once that demon was driven out, that man could hear and speak once more. With Jesus Christ, the kingdom begins practically here on earth when he takes steps to challenge the grip that Satan has over this world. Ever since the fall into sin, Satan has had some freedom. We read in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He is also described as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, verse 2. He didn't have absolute power over this world, but he had managed to gather for himself some power. Now, with Christ's actions in our passage today, he is destroying that power of Satan bit by bit. He's bringing in peace and healing to someone who is tormented by demonic influences 
by someone who was unable to speak and unable to hear. By bringing in God's kingdom in this way, he was destroying Satan's power from the inside out for this man. But not everyone felt this way. Not everyone attributed it to the kingdom of God coming from Jesus and working its way to destroy the power of Satan. The Pharisees muttered among themselves that it was by Beelzebub, literally the Lord of the Flies, a derogatory term for Satan, that Jesus was driving out demons. But Jesus points out the ridiculousness of this reason. Every kingdom divided against itself shall be destroyed, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Should be pretty straightforward, shouldn't it? If Satan is undermining his own work, how does that make any sense? His work is being undone. His bondage is being broken. Freedom is being granted. And he stands against all of those. Moreover, Jesus says, logically, if it is Satan who enables exorcisms, then what about your men who say they drive out demons? By whose power do they do it? Because if it's Satan who does exorcisms, who allows for exorcisms, well, then they're using that same power, and they'll be your judges. They're carrying out the devil's work. If it is the devil's work, those followers of the Pharisees, the sons of the Pharisees, they're carrying out that work just as much as Jesus is. But, he says, if he is casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then they need to take warning. Because then, surely the kingdom of God has come upon them. The kingdom of God has come, and by the sheer weight of its presence, it's pushing out the kingdom of Satan, this puppet kingdom that set itself up in the domain of God. Every healing, every exorcism, and every spoken word by Jesus advanced the kingdom of God in the world. And this kingdom would be victorious. With Christ's death on the cross, his victory purchased by his blood, would be made firm. What Jesus was saying was God is not only the king of heaven, but his rule extends to earth. And while the devil may have attempted to set up a rebellious kingdom within God's domain, it won't stand. It's being driven out slowly but surely, and ultimately it will be destroyed. But if that's truly the case, then the immediate follow-up question is, if God is king and Satan is an upstart ruler trying to maintain a rebel kingdom within God's kingdom, if Satan's kingdom is being defeated, or if it is defeated on the cross, why is God's kingdom not more apparent? Shouldn't there be peace everywhere? Oh, God is indeed the true ruler of the earth. We read in Psalm 47, verse 2, For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. Again, in Psalm 74, verse 12, we read, For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. But so much goes wrong still. Does God actually reign here? 
What's the sense of God's kingdom here on earth? Well, God does reign. Jesus Christ says in Luke 17, verse 20 to 21, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. God does reign, and that reign begins in us. But it's not a physical kingdom at first. As one commentator writes, it's not about land or armies or money or earthly power. In fact, the king of this kingdom won victory on a cross. Some of the greatest subjects of the kingdom have been killed for their faith in this king. And today, many of them look old and weak and small in the eyes of the world. The kingdom starts within you and grows out of there. So recognizing that, that leaves us with a great responsibility. We're given the beginnings of this kingdom. We're given the supreme ethic of God's love and the freedom to carry it out. We have that love imprinted on our hearts by our king and are given the charge to reflect the love of that king to those around us. But the kingdom does not end there. For the kingdom is among us. It's in our midst. And as we carry out our day-to-day tasks, spreading the news of the kingdom, bringing other people to the healing that the kingdom brings, and submitting to the rule of the kingdom ourselves, the kingdom grows. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes what happens in this way. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. The Heidelberg says, preserve and increase your church. Destroy the work of the devil, every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Now, this is not something that just magically happens. This is not a waving of the wand. Rather, we must understand that God carries out his will in the world. That he does do this work. But he carries out his will in the world using instruments. And those instruments are, namely, us. That's not to say that God is not able to or cannot and does not act without us. In fact, he's incredibly capable of doing that. But God has chosen to do a marvelous work in that he has decided to choose to, de- to work out the declaration of his kingdom through us, through his people. We can read about that in Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 13 to 17. You can find that on page 1303 of your pew Bible. Romans 10, verses 13 to 17. There we read, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so there we see the beginnings of the kingdom going out. But then we find the words, 
how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed their report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now this is within the structure of a different argument, of a broader argument that Paul is making here in Romans, but that's not the argument that we're going to deal with today. What I want to point out today is the fact that we can see through this that God is using instruments to spread his word. Faith comes through hearing the word. All those who believe in him will not be put to shame. But he uses people to send out that word. He declares his kingdom through his people. This is why our catechism begins with praying that God would first rule in us by his word and spirit so that more and more we submit to him and then describes how exactly this happens. The kingdom is administered in heaven, but it comes to earth through God's spirit and word, using people as his instruments. And it carries out his task of gathering, defending, and preserving the church. Zacharias or Sinus, one of the authors of the catechism, describes four ways in which the kingdom comes. He says, first of all, by the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel reveals to us the knowledge of the true and heavenly doctrine. We know that from Romans 10. Second, he says, by conversion, when some are converted to God, who grants unto them faith and repentance. Again, we see that God is the driving force behind his work, though the gospel message is shared through man as his instruments. Third, by increase in development, when the godly make progress in holiness. And fourth, by the perfection and the glorification of the church in the second coming of Christ. Through this, we can see that what begins with God himself is moved and is moved forward by us as his instruments and is brought to final completion by God himself again. So where does that leave us? In praying your kingdom come within this structure, within this understanding of how the kingdom comes to be, that it begins with God, that it uses us as instruments, as instruments of advancing his kingdom, and then finally God brings it to completion. Within that structure, we're called to pray that God would shape and equip us to be the best possible instruments to further the coming of the kingdom. We're to pray that he would make us willing and ready to act as instruments when the time comes. We're to pray that when the time does come, he would use us powerfully and effectively. And we're to pray that when we're finished, we would recognize that the work itself is only and ultimately finished by God and not by us. That he, that we can recognize that he can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick, as it were. And that we pray that we can leave it in his hands at the end of the day.
We recognize that wicked things can happen in this world and will happen. That's the effect of sin combined with the freedom of that, that God has allowed people to have. If people were mere puppets, that would not be a willing kingdom membership. That would not be a people serving God out of love. But by God's kingdom coming in this way, we're brought more clearly to see the brokenness and the horrible effects of sin and to contrast that with what is freely offered us as a grace through Jesus Christ. But more than that, we're brought to recognize the patience of our God. That he doesn't bring down condemnation on the world in this very instant. But that he chooses to withhold his wrath so that working through his people, he can bring more and more people into his kingdom. Because if his kingdom came now, in its bright glory, in the recognition of his purity and his holiness, then there would be many who would be destroyed. But we recognize God's mercy and his patience in waiting to bring in those who are his. We're spurred to strive for and pray for a better kingdom, a kingdom of true liberty, a kingdom in which God's rule is recognized as supreme, and we seek to be tools in the hands of God, instruments in the advancement of that kingdom. Pray that God would equip you. Then work to open yourself to being equipped to open your heart to being equipped. Do this by studying the Bible together. Challenge each other's beliefs and so build each other up. Reach out to those around you and let God expose your weaknesses through their responses. Challenge yourself to address those weaknesses and then reach out again. Pray that God would work through you for the advancement of his kingdom. Pray that conversions for the kingdom would come. Pray that the church would be strengthened as the instrument through whom God advances his kingdom. And pray that we would be able to turn the rest, the outcomes and our concerns about the outcomes over to God himself. Because it is by his strength and according to his plan that this kingdom will be fully established that this kingdom will be fully established. So I want to turn to see how this kingdom is fully established. I want to turn for a moment to Hebrews chapter 12. It says there, for you have not come. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, sorry. Verse 18, page 1384. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of, its wor of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. He's referring to the Israelites at Mount Sinai here. For they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you... And you have to understand that this is in the context of what Jesus Christ has already done. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, 
to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. And then in verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. There is a kingdom coming. This kingdom will soon be finally and fully established. Now currently the kingdom is in an already but not yet phase. An already but not yet phase. In Matthew 3 verse 2 the call goes out, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In our passage, Christ says, if I drive out demons, the kingdom has come. Christ himself is described as the first fruits of the great and coming resurrection. And yet the kingdom has not come in its fullness yet. Satan is still called the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, although his power has effectively been neutered on the cross. And he is still recognized as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2 verse 2. We as a people still groan as we await the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8 verse 22. One will experience all the goodness that the kingdom has to offer in its fullest measure. But Christ has come. We see that in part. Christ has come. And so through that we have the assurance that we come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Christ has been the victor in the battle on the cross. And he reigns victoriously in heaven. There are battles that are still ongoing. It's true. To my catechism students, I explained it in the way of saying it's like when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. It's a common example. The Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, and once they had established a foothold there, once they had established a foothold in Europe, World War II was effectively over. All that was left was to mop up the last resistance, and there was some extreme fighting during that time. But the war was effectively over. The kingdom has come, but it's not yet complete. So during this time, recognizing the victory in which we stand, let us strive towards the completion of that kingdom. Let us rejoice in having Christ in heaven as the first fruits and the sure confidence that we will be victorious as well that through Christ we too can stand in that innumerable company. And let us pray, Father, may what's up there in heaven come down here. Let this world experience the fullness of what we already taste in part, that you may be recognized as all in all. Amen.